Gospel, chapter 1. And this morning with the new year, um, I feel the Lord leading us to, uh, to dig into Mark's Gospel beginning to end. We're going to spend the spring walking together through uh, Mark's gospel about our Lord. And um, this morning we're going to start right there in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I can't think of any better way to begin our year together as a church than drawing near to Jesus in the gospels. And so we're going to do that. And and as we get started, Mark chapter 1, we're going to work down through verse uh, 15 this morning. But there are, there are moments in life that change everything that follows. There are, there are moments that bring radical change to our lives. You know, you think about when you, you got your driver's license for the first time and suddenly the world opened up and, and you could access more than you ever could before. Maybe the same thing happened when you got your first car and suddenly the world opened up. There are moments that change everything. Interestingly, sociologists tell us that the young generation right now doesn't look at getting a car the same way we did. In fact, they have that same experience that most of us felt in getting a car or driver's license when they get a phone. Uh, As a matter of fact, those under 30 tell us that the most important technology in their life is not a car, it's a phone, which is interesting, which is a sea change in our culture. But there are moments that change everything. Like, like the first time you noticed girls or you noticed boys and suddenly that person that you were playing four square with at recess, you wake up one day and go, oh my goodness, she's a girl. I remember that happening to me. <laughs> wow. You know, there's moments that change everything. When you become a parent, right? And this child enters your life. I'll never forget that moment. Oh, Lord, what have I done here? (laughs) You know, everything's different. And some of us have had the experience of losing a child. And in the wake of that, everything is different. There's moments that do that to us. Maybe you you have the experience that I've had that I I would wish for everyone, and that is to live in another country for a prolonged period of time. Wow, that opens your eyes, opens your heart. You realize people can think very differently than we do. There are moments that change everything, and after them, you're never the same again. Like that moment when your team is about to win their second straight Super Bowl. You're on the one-yard line, and um, sorry to bring that up today, but um, but seriously, there are moments that that change the way we see everything. These guys were part of those moments for us uh, as a race, as a species. Copernicus demonstrated to us that the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. What a change that was. What a different way of seeing everything that brought about. Or Pythagoras demonstrating that the earth is round, it's not flat. Imagine how that changed people's perception of everything. Einstein, when he proved to us that time and space are relative. They're not constant. Wow. 
Suddenly everything changes. He's also kind of a fun guy to look at. But anyway, Max Planck, the really nerdy guy up there who demonstrated that quantum dynamics are real. And if you know nothing about it and you want to have your mind blown, do a little reading down that road. But all of these men, people, were part of moments that revealed something we never knew. And as a consequence, it changed us. It changed how we think and feel, you can take that down, guys, about everything else. It's kind of like having a close encounter. You remember Richard Dreyfuss in the movie Close Encounters? He's driving his truck along and he stops and something happens. Something's there. And his world is changed after that. I remember sitting on the porch with my grandfather on a summer evening. He was a crewman on a B-24 in World War II. And I remember him sitting there and with great seriousness, I must have been about 10, 11, telling me the story of how he saw something one night in the sky when he was in his plane in the belly turret of that B-24 that he says, Greg, to this day I can't explain. I don't know what that was. He says, but I believe in you, folks. There are moments that change us deeply and profoundly. This morning, we begin a journey through Mark's gospel, which was written to tell the story, catch this, of how God reveals himself through this man, Jesus, and how that changes everything. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word, the self-expression of God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. What could be more significant than God making himself known? Nothing that's going to happen in your life today, this week, this month, this year, this lifetime is as significant as God making himself known, which he does in Christ the scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that, or in Hebrews chapter 1 that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son that when we see Jesus God is making himself known. Colossians tells us, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 15 of chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Somebody says, I want to know who God is, what he's like. When you see Jesus, you see that. When you hear Jesus, you hear that. He himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And, and as we watch Jesus together, we are changed by him. And we're going to do that in our journey through Mark's gospel together. Let's, let's just start right at verse 1 of chapter 1. The Bible says this, The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, church, Mark's gospel is short. It's the shortest of the gospels. It's sweet. It's fast-moving. It's full of action. Most scholars believe that it was written as a missionary book for non-Jews. It'll only quote the Old Testament one time, whereas Matthew is going to do it relentlessly. Mark was written as a missionary book. It get, gets right to the point. It speaks to us the way we would speak to someone else if we had had a close encounter with something transcendent. And right from the beginning, Mark uses the word gospel. I want to call your attention to that word for a moment. The word means good news. We've often reduced the word gospel to a technical religious term, but it isn't that. It means something you would be so excited to tell that you couldn't hold yourself back. 
Like, for example, if you heard that there was free tacos, you'd be ecstatic. I remember when my wife said yes to marrying me. I couldn't wait to tell everybody. I was like, oh, mom, guess what? Dad, guess what? Told my brothers, my brother, guess what? My sisters, guess what? Told my friends, guess what? I couldn't wait to tell anybody and everybody. Mark begins his gospel by saying the news about Jesus is like that. It's glorious good news. The word literally means excitingly good news that brings joy to the one who hears it. That's why Mark starts with that word, gospel. And Mark immediately goes on to tell us this good news as fast as he can. Let me just challenge us with something this morning, church. Do you feel that way about sharing your faith? Like it's the glorious good news you can't wait to tell? If you don't, don't get guilty, but say to yourself, hmm, how come I don't feel that? What am I missing? What am I not paying attention to that has caused that desire to, to, to diminish in my heart? Think back to when your husband or your wife agreed to marry you and how you felt, how you wanted to tell everybody. The gospel, in its truth and in its essence, feels like that. And you can be a believer and have lost touch with that feeling, but God wants to restore that sense in our hearts. So he says the gospel about Jesus Christ. And then the only time he's going to quote the Old Testament, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Uh, let's notice a couple of things here, church. First of all, in your life and mine, God is always working out a plan. That's what Mark wants us to understand. The coming of Jesus isn't an impulse. It's not a sudden thing. It's not a, a, a whim that suddenly struck God. He was planning for it all along. That's why Mark tells us that Isaiah the prophet prophesied that this would happen. He wants us to understand. And what God wants us to understand is that there is a plan in our lives. There is a A to Z plan in your life that God is working out. And the promises that have been made to you in the past, they will be fulfilled in his time. You can rest assured of that. Mark tells us that Isaiah prophesied that this would happen and that it's happening now as a way of saying to his audience, God is up to something, has always been up to something. And now you're beginning to see that reality unfold in front of you. You want to grasp this about your own life if you're a believer because it is profoundly true and it is meant to be a kind of solid ground that your heart and mind and soul rest on. The psalmist expressed it this way in Psalm 139. He said, to, speaking to God, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, God, I know that you're in control. God, I understand that I am in your control. God wants you to know that, church, if you're a believer. He wants you to know that, to feel that, and to rest in it. You know, when I look back on my time in boot camp in the Marine Corps, a lot of things that didn't make sense then make sense now. I began to understand afterwards that there was a plan all the way through. They were changing me. They were turning me into somebody capable of something I wasn't before. And when I look back, I can see it so clearly. God says that reality is happening in all of our lives. It's happening in your life. He's working out his plan. And notice also, recognizing his plan, hear me now, involves preparation by 
what uh, John calls making straight paths. Read the passage again. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Church, understand something. You will see God's plan working itself out in your life more clearly, with greater precision, the more you pursue righteousness, the more you pursue godly living. It opens your eyes and makes visible to you what wasn't visible before. I love the way C.S. Lewis illustrates this. He says, if you think of a house with windows, The inside of that house will experience the sunshine to a greater or lesser degree depending on how clean or dirty the windows are. The light doesn't change. The sun doesn't change. It's always there. Clean windows allow more of it in. Dirty windows block some of it. And right from the beginning, Mark tells us that John the Baptist comes crying out to us, make straight paths, repent, turn to God, turn away from darkness and ungodly living because it will open your eyes to the plan that God is realizing in our lives. The prophet Isaiah said, I will send my messenger, speaking under God's inspiration, and and he sends John. John the Baptist comes, as we're going to see in a moment, to bring that same message, to prepare people. All of that, to put, put this very simply, if you want to perceive and feel and see more clearly what God is doing in your life, wash the windows. Pursue godly living. Set aside sinful habits and passions and God will deliver and rescue you and help you see what he's doing in your life. That's what it means to prepare your way. And the Bible says John came, John the Baptist came to prepare people in that specific way. Here's what scripture says, verses four and following. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance. What is that? We'll talk about it. For the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was dedicated to this mission in a radical way. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, let's step back and take this in. John preached a baptism of repentance. He invited people to repent. Again, we have a word that is profoundly misunderstood. We turn it into a technical religious word. Repentance means literally to change your mind. It means to agree with God instead of yourself or the culture around you. Uh, It means to have your mind changed. It doesn't mean to engage in a religious ritual. That's a symptom of having your mind changed. It means to willingly change the way you're thinking. It's you saying, God, you're right about this and I'm wrong about it. That's something God seeks in your life. That's something I seek in my marriage because for 35 years, my wife makes the bed wrong. Okay? (laughs) She does it wrong, and I've been trying to get through to her, and I haven't yet, but I'm dedicated to it. I'm seeking to bring about repentance in her life so that she would make the bed properly. I'm kidding, of course, but you get the idea. Seriously, God helps you. Church, please hear me. God helps you and me most when we let him 
change our minds. Yeah, that's, that's his greatest blessing to us here and now, is when he let, we let him change our minds. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you let him do that? Change your mind about the way you relate to your wife or your husband or your kids or your work or the school you go to or your church or whatever. When was the last time, when was the last time you let him change your mind about how you relate to your enemies? He wants to. And it is when we let him change our mind. It's when we repent by agreeing with him instead of ourselves that God blesses us. And in fact, that's what Jesus is going to very specifically offer in a moment. But before, let me help you notice one other thing. John says, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. God will send people into your life. And the way that you will be able to recognize that those people are sent from God is that they will point beyond themselves. They will point you to Jesus. They will not call you to pay attention to them. They will call you to pay attention beyond them to the Son of God. This, friends, is the test of a good pastor. If a pastor calls you to focus on him or her, watch out. Because a real and a good one always calls you to focus beyond them. This is the goal that you want to have in other people's lives, in your kids' lives. Mom, dad, your role in your kids' lives is not to focus your kids' devotion on you. Your role in their lives is to teach them to devote themselves to Christ, to Jesus, even at the expense of their relationship with you if necessary. That's what our Lord teaches us. John is sent into this world, not that we might all rally around John and champion him and elect him to high office. No, John comes into our lives to point beyond himself to Christ, to point us beyond himself. Christ followers reject the cults of celebrity that are everywhere in our world. Sometimes, like when I just did this heart attack thing, somebody will say, Pastor Greg, we can't get along without you. Stop it. You make me feel like I'm failing. Because a real man of God will always point us beyond that man or woman. God wants you to grow beyond that, to be devoted to him, to his son, to his church, not to a personality, not to a leader, not to somebody that we're friends with. John himself said it this way to, to his disciples. He said, he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. I must seek to be less in your life. Third and finally, Notice this from the passage that we just read, and that is that the signs God sends into your life are not an end in themselves. They are given to point us to Jesus. Lots of people think that miracles or supernatural experiences are what we should seek in themselves. Nonsense. Jesus himself warned, Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I'll tell them plainly, away from me, I never knew you. You were doing a religious thing, but it wasn't a Jesus thing. So in this moment, John is calling us beyond himself, beyond the moment, into focusing on Jesus. Yeah, I remember when I worked in the emergency room all those years ago, there were, there were lots of signs going on on a busy Friday night. Uh, people bleeding, crying, screaming, sometimes even dying. But I learned that while all those things are real, my job is to listen to the doctor so I can help those people. And in the same way, 
John calls us beyond the moment to listening to this man, Jesus. Having done that, immediately Mark's gospel skips ahead to the Lord himself. And we learn two things right away. The first thing is that when we receive God's leadership in our lives, he leads us into struggle, not out of it. And second, that listening to Jesus is how we find real freedom in a world that wants to enslave us. Uh, look what the scripture says. At that time, beginning with verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, an audible voice spoke, Matthew tells us. And he says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the spirit led him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, let's pause for a moment. There's potential for misunderstanding here that we want to dodge. It would be tempting to think that the audible voice was there to tell Jesus something he doesn't already know. That would be a mistake. Jesus knew who he was. Long before this moment, back in Luke chapter 2, for example, we find the boy Jesus at the temple describing God as his father and saying to his family, where else would you expect to find me than in my father's house? When an audible voice spoke to him in John chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus is explicit about it. He says to the crowd that heard it, this voice is for your benefit, not mine. So let's dodge the misunderstanding that somehow at this moment God spoke to Jesus and convinced him he was somebody he didn't know he was. That's not the case. The point of the miracle was to point us beyond itself to Jesus, to listening to him, to receiving him into our lives as authority, as revelation. And notice what happens next. Immediately after the Lord's baptism, as he begins his mission, uh, it's finally time for that mission to begin. God has a timing in all of our lives. And God begins it surprisingly, catch this, friends, by leading Jesus into the desert to confront the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says specifically, the Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Understand something, friends. As you allow God to lead your life, he is going to lead you into struggle against temptation. He is going to lead you into the battle against temptation and sin. That's what he does. That's what we need. I remember before I was a believer, before I came to Christ, I didn't struggle with my sins. I indulged in them. I looked forward to them. I wanted to do them. They were destroying me. They had already begun to do that, but I didn't recognize that. And it was only after I became a believer that I began to struggle with, hey, not just what do I want to do, but should I do this? Should I follow this impulse? Should I follow this desire? Should I follow this appetite? And right at the beginning of Jesus' mission, God leads him to engage in that very real struggle. If I can go back to the emergency room for a moment, there's a cool kind of joy in tangibly helping injured, sick, and hurting people. But one of the first lessons I learned when I began to work there is that I can't be helpful if I can't control myself emotionally and otherwise. So it is with you and me. If we can't control ourselves, uh, there's only two options. Either God sets us aside because he can't use us, in that condition, or we confront it and overcome it. And what God is doing in Jesus' life right from the beginning is saying, okay, 
This is going to be a struggle, and I'm calling you into that struggle. Church, let me help you understand something. Very often we condemn ourselves when we struggle against sin. We act as if it's an evidence that something is wrong with us. The struggle is the evidence that something is right with you. The struggle is the evidence that you're seeking to follow God's leading. It's those who don't struggle who are in danger. Those who do give the evidence that they are being led by the Holy Spirit. Grasp this. Your struggle against sin is a sign that you are getting closer to God, not a sign that you're falling away from him. In Genesis chapter 32, there's a marvelous story. It's the story of Jacob, one of my favorite stories. And Jacob makes a lot of mistakes in his life. He follows a lot of impulses. He piles up a lot of sins. And then there comes a moment when all of the consequences of his actions are about to crash down on him. And the Bible says that he, he went to God finally and wrestled with God all night long. And when he got up the, uh, and he wouldn't let go, the next morning the, the angel of the Lord that he was wrestling with says to him, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not. And in that moment, the angel, first of all, physically <laughs> removes him, dislocates his hip. But then he says... I'm giving you a new name right now. No longer will you be called Jacob, which means deceiver. Now you will be called Israel, which means he struggles. My beloved, because he struggles. And church, hear something clear as a bell this morning. Your struggle against sin is not the evidence that you're failing. It's the evidence that you're succeeding. It is the proof that you are following the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. God says it is your struggle against your impulses that reveals who you are. Fellas, get up and fight against pornography. Don't say to yourself, wow, I've tried, i failed, I can't do it anymore. No, that just means you haven't struggled through to victory yet. Get up and fight against it. Ladies, get up and fight against your tongue, your bitterness, your tendency to feel sorry for yourself. Fellas, take a stand against your temper and against your fear. When you do, when you struggle against these things, you please your father. It's the sign of who you are. And God renames you in that moment, mine my Israel, my people. The struggle is the sign of who you are. And then Jesus, coming back from that struggle, having entered into it as the evidence of his intention to obey the Father, the Bible says he began his ministry, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And he said this, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. We just learned what repent means. We just learned what good news means. Now Jesus adds another idea. The kingdom of God is near. What does he mean by that? He means that you and me in him can begin to experience the leadership of God in our lives when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord we can begin to experience the leadership of God in our lives. That's what the kingdom of God is. It isn't a nation that occurs here or there. Jesus made that clear in Luke chapter 17 when the Pharisee said, where is it? Jesus said, no, it's in you. It's among you. It's not a thing outside of you. It's a thing that happens in you. Jesus says, in my coming, the kingdom of God becomes available to you, Greg. 
Now you can listen to me, Jesus, and you can be led by God because I make him known to you. Church, this is, this is a big deal. Many, many think of the Christian faith as a way to get what they want. A certain kind of family or a certain kind of success on earth or a certain kind of feeling. Or... But the, the gospel isn't meant to help me get what I want. It's meant to help me want what God's giving. And there is a difference between those two things. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's saying, Greg, you can be led by God in your life. You can begin to perceive his plan for your life. You can begin to benefit from his leadership in your life. When Jesus began his ministry by declaring the kingdom is near, he was speaking of his coming and saying, from this moment forward, if you listen to me, you can experience the leadership of God in your life. You see, church, our world is struggling because our wants and desires are so disordered, are so deceived. When Jesus offers the kingdom, he's offering to reorder our desires, our wants. He's offering to help us find the freedom of wanting what God is giving. A heroin addict craves heroin, but getting it isn't freedom. A man with a bad temper wants to vent his rage, but getting the opportunity to vent it, that isn't freedom. That's just a deeper kind of slavery. The gospel is God inviting you in Christ to discover the freedom of wanting what he's giving, and that's why Jesus uses the image of a kingdom. You know, once upon a time when I was very young, we're almost done this morning, you know, I wanted to be rich. I want to ask for a show of hands of how many people have wanted that in their lives. Most of us have. But I wanted it because I thought it would make me free. But as I've gone through life, I've learned it doesn't work that way. That freedom doesn't come from having the right things. Freedom comes from being able to want the right things. And that's what Jesus is offering in the gospel of the kingdom. The scripture tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 6, when it comes to wanting to be rich. Listen, church, this is so clear. And here's an example of God's leadership. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. There's some pretty clear leadership here. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not of all evil, as we've misquoted, but of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I heard that as a young believer and I said, oh, so God, you want me to want something else. Okay, show me how that happens. And then he does. And then as the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4, we learn the secret of being content with much or with little, content no matter what, because my wants have changed, because my desires have have changed. Church, Jesus comes preaching the kingdom in order to change your desires. I wonder if any of us sitting here this morning have desires that we wish were changed. I know we do, because guess what? I'm one of you. God says, I want to change your desires, and I can when you receive me as the king 
of your kingdom. When you change your mind and agree with what I'm telling you about what's right and good, what's worth wanting, what's worth desiring, when you change your mind and agree with me about that, that's what repentance is, then the kingdom of God draws near to you. You begin to discover your wants and desires changed. You begin to perceive more clearly the plan that God is working out in your life. That's what Jesus comes offering. You know, if I can just finish with a story this morning, and you know, I've been walking with you for 13 years now, so sometimes I tell a story over again. This is one of those. When I was a new believer, when I was a brand new Christian, 20 years old, you know, I had a, a long habit, a long tradition of, of craving to go see horror movies. In my days, it was Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, all this stuff. And I wanted to go see them. And it wasn't long after I became a believer, after Jesus became my king, and I entered into his kingdom, that I began to hear him saying, you know, Greg, that's not really what I have for you. <laughs> There's nothing good, noble, and praiseworthy in that. And that created a conflict. That created a struggle. Because inside of me, there was this part that said, but, but I like it. And God said, no, you think you do. I know you think you do. But the truth is, you will be more satisfied, happier, more joyful. You will dig it more when you don't want that. I said, oh, God, you're killing me here. This is my own little thing. I like this. And I entered into a struggle. Now, religion says... I'm not saved till that struggle ends. Gospel says, I'm saved when that struggle begins. So I entered into this struggle. Went on for a few years. You know, the movie would come out. I wouldn't tell anybody. Shh. Drive to another town and watch it. <laughs> right? And, and then I'd sit there and I'd go, what? And this thing started happening though. It'd get to the scary part or the gory part. And I'd go, ooh. And then I go, what am I doing? I came here to see this. And one time I, I went to one with a friend, an old friend from high school, and in the middle of the movie I could see this violent, gory part coming. And, and as it started, I went, oh, I don't want to see that. My friend goes, what are you doing? I said, ah, no, you, ha, 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 this is so cool. Said, and we came out of the movie afterwards, and my friend said to me, what's wrong with you? And inside my heart, I could hear God saying, no, Greg, something's getting right with you. You know, today, I just have no desire. I'm not interested. Why, why do I want to see that? And some of you say, well, you're not free to go anymore. No, I'm free to not go. And I share that illustration because this is the kind of freedom God wants to bring into all of our lives. This is why Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. This is what he wants to do in your life. Now, it begins when you change your mind and say, Lord, I want your ways more than my own. God, I want your desires more than my own desires. God, I want that. I seek that. Please bring me that. And the moment that you, you say that to God, the struggle begins. And that struggle leads to freedom. That struggle and the moment that you begin it is when God renames you and says, oh yeah, you're my people. You're mine. I wonder if this morning you would say, just you and God, not to us, but just you and God, you would say, man, I got some desires I want changed. Man, I got some, some desires I want to change. God says, I can help you with that. I will help you with that. Receive me as your king. Receive my son, Jesus, as your leader. Let him change your mind. 
I'll change your desires. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, we thank you for this good news, this gospel that you brought, that the kingdom of God is near. That when we draw near to you, we draw into God's leadership. Lord, some of us really have desires we need changed. And maybe they're secrets and nobody else knows about them, but you do. God, we bring those desires to you this morning and we pray. Teach us how to agree with you, to let you lead us, to humble ourselves before you, that you might give us new desires, the desires that bring joy and freedom. We pray for that. We're crying out to you, Lord, as the psalmist said, create in me a clean heart. If that's you this morning, don't just let me say it. You say it to God. He's your Father. The power is when you enter into the struggle. Maybe you need to say this morning, God, here's these desires. I need them changed. He hears you as you do. He hears you now. You tell him right now. Father, we thank you for your word. Let us go from here, drawing near to your kingdom as we allow your son to change our minds. We pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You stand with me, church. You know, one of the most awful things in the world is to have a desire that controls you and not to know how to get beyond it. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, self-control. It's where God sets you free from that desire. He can and will change your desires as you draw near to his leadership.